Good morning, everyone. Welcome once again. If I haven't had the privilege of meeting you, my name is Chris, and I'm the lead pastor here at Redeemer, and I am privileged to open God's Word with you. I invite you to open your copy of God's Word to the Gospel of Matthew, the first Gospel in the New Testament. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 12, and we're going to be reading a few verses there, beginning in verse 15, reading through verse 21, as we see how there was an amazing Old Testament prophecy from the prophet Isaiah that applies to Jesus. And we're going to see what that teaches us about the reality of His work in ministry when He was alive and even now. So I want to encourage you to follow along with me. You can follow along on the screen or you can follow along on the YouVersion Bible app. And while you are turning there, I just want one more time to commend to you and encourage you to pick up one of the prayer guides for the Ukraine that we have prepared for you. You may not be aware of this, but since the fall of the Berlin Wall and the dissolution of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, God has been doing a mighty work in the Ukraine specifically. And Ukraine has become the center of evangelicalism In all of Eastern Europe, Ukraine sends more missionaries than any other place in Eastern Europe. They are a key part of the evangelism of Russia and throughout all of Eastern Europe. The president of the Ukrainian Baptist Theological Seminary is a graduate of the Southern Baptist Seminary in Dallas, Texas. These are our brothers and sisters in Christ And they are on the front lines of the major crisis, and we want to encourage you, as we have been in our morning prayer time this morning and then here in the service, to continue in prayer for your brothers and sisters there in the Ukraine, that God would deliver them from evil, that He would stop the evil actions that are being taken against the Ukrainian people, and that He would empower them to even in the midst of this, share good news and glorify Him. So we want to encourage you to do that. But let's go to God's Word together here in Matthew chapter 12. We'll begin reading in verse 15 and read through verse 21. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed Him, and He healed them all. And he ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him. And he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. This is God's holy, inerrant, and eternal word. May he add his blessing to its reading and its proclamation. Throughout this series, we have been talking about what does it mean to live in the light 
of the invitations that Jesus Christ gives us to come into relationship with the living God of the universe. So over the last few weeks, these are some of the things that we've seen. We've seen that Jesus isn't waiting for us to come to Him when we have energy and have our act together. Rather, He invites us to come to Him when we are weary and heavily burdened. He invites us to come to Him when we are thirsty and realize that all that this world promises it can satisfy, it can't. He invites us to come to Him spiritually hungry, ready for real life. And He invites us to come and and not just partake of Him in small measure, but to feast on His grace. And so we've seen that reality, and then over the last few weeks, we've been talking about how He wants us to come to Him. He wants us to come to Him often. We talked about that last week, evening and morning and at noon in prayer. Jesus wants us to come to Him frequently with the posture of a child in childlike humility, childlike submission. So today, we're going to see kind of two main themes that we can continue to study and learn on this idea of of coming to Christ. Specifically, as you heard already beautifully in the children's message, we have such great teams here that work on tech and volunteers, and and Jason is literally playing, I think, every instrument known to mankind this morning. Like, I mean, you know, if he he pulled out a brass band on the side, I wouldn't have been surprised, right? Right. I mean, it's amazing um, what our people do and how they use their gifts, and so I'm so grateful for that. But, but as we heard in the children's message, we are invited to come and behold this servant that God has sent to see him, and in fact, to, to really look and examine and understand him, and then not just to see him, but to experience him as God's personal grace to each of us. So those will be the two main concepts that we'll see. There's an invitation to come and see God's servant. It's found right there in Matthew chapter 12, verse 18, the very first words, behold my servant. By the way, this is a quote from Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 3. It's almost exactly a quote from the Greek version of the Hebrew Old Testament. And, it, and because of the way the verses break out, it's not quite just verse 3 there. It goes into verse 4 as well in Isaiah chapter 42. When the Bible says, behold, what's it telling you to do? Look. (laughs) That's what the word means. If If I said to you, behold the Grand Canyon, I would mean, look at the Grand Canyon. Or if we were standing on the coastline and said, behold the wave, you would be looking at the waves, right? (laughs) All right? It's not a word we use very much because it's a word that we use only when something is truly significant, truly worth contemplating and reflecting, not just simply to see with your eyes, but the word behold is an invitation to reflect deeply while gazing. You know, I think of going to a museum and sitting maybe on just a a covered uh, futon or type chair, uh, uh, a little sofa, padded sofa, and just staring at a painting. You're seeing it, but you're also reflecting on it, right? You're reflecting on how light and and shadow affects the painting. You're thinking about what the artist meant. And that's what the word behold means. 
When God says to us, I want you to behold my servant, he's inviting us to put our minds on something deliberately and intentionally, not just simply to glance at or even to look momentarily or or even just to look at, but without contemplation or reflection. He's saying to you, I want you to see and think and reflect on and meditate on my servant. So he gives us some things to think about. Now, what he's going to say is this, that behold, Jesus is God's humble servant. He is the answer to what Isaiah had prophesied hundreds of years before. And in this prophecy, Matthew is saying, listen, Jesus did all of these things. I was there. I saw it. I was part of what was happening. And you see this attitude and orientation of Jesus was to be a servant to the world around him. You see that in Matthew 12, 19, when we see that the attitude of Jesus was not quarrelsome. He wasn't the kind of person who cried aloud. He wasn't yelling in the streets. Uh, and, and, and what kind of person does that? You say, well, you know, a crazy person or a person who's mad, a person who's seeking attention, perhaps. Well, maybe you're not doing it on the streets these days, but trust me, just go on Twitter and you'll see lots of people crying aloud. Lots of people screaming and quarreling, fighting over petty things. The orientation of Jesus was to come and bring good news to the world. He did not pursue attention or admiration. He was in the business of, in fact, often cloaking or hiding what he was doing. If you look back where we very much began this passage in verse 15, you'll see that Jesus, aware of this, and you should ask, what is this? (laughs) Withdrew from there. What he was aware of, if you read back a few verses, was that he was now a target of a conspiracy to commit murder. The Pharisees wanted to murder him, Because he had made some claims. The chief claim was that he was Lord of the Sabbath. That he had authority over what was right and wrong and rest. Because he was aware of this, instead of pursuing notoriety, instead of believing what many contemporary politicians believe, which is that there is no such thing as bad press... Jesus disengages from this public ministry, and yet even when he goes out into the wilderness, many people follow him there. And there, what do we find him doing? Healing the people. He's addressing their pain and their brokenness. And yet, he orders them to, make him, to not make him known. He doesn't want people to know what it is that he is doing. Now, theologians call this the gospel secret of Jesus, that throughout his ministry, for almost all of his three-year ministry, Jesus gives this command over and over and over again, saying to people, don't tell anybody what God did for you. (laughs) Occasionally, he'll say, tell them what the Father did for you, but don't talk about me. He's not in the business of trying to draw attention to himself because he has this orientation that is radically different from much of the world. In fact, what you're going to find is that Jesus had no worldly significance. He wasn't trying to make himself look good. He wasn't trying to get on the cover of the 
the first century uh, uh, People magazine, right? He's not trying to show up in the newsstand at all. In fact, he's doing exactly what Isaiah had also prophesied. That he would grow up like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He would have no form or majesty that we should look at him. In other words, Jesus, the most shocking thing about Jesus was that he was so ordinary. He did not, ladies, look like Channing Tatum, okay? He did not. He had no, no former majesty that you should look at him and no beauty that you should desire him. He was just ordinary. And furthermore, Isaiah goes on to say he was not just not pursued, he was despised and rejected by men. And he was a man of sorrows. A person who was well acquainted with grief and brokenness. In fact, people hid their faces from him. He was despised and not at all esteemed. Why? If you are, as Jesus claimed, the Son of God, always eternal, coexistent with the Father, the Creator of life and breath and everything else, why would you come and choose the form of a nobody? Worse than a nobody, somebody that people actually hate. See, the answer is that Jesus came to serve the world. He didn't come for His own agenda. He came, even though He was, as the author of Philippians says, Paul says, even though He was in the form of God, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That's what humans have been doing since the garden, trying to make ourselves equal to God, climbing ourselves out of Eden and into a place of exile. We've been pursuing trying to be like God. Jesus, who actually was fully God and fully man, didn't pursue that authority, but rather He emptied Himself and took the form of a servant, even being born in the likeness of a man in, in a humble Stable, right? So from the beginning, the reality of Jesus Christ is that He did not come in order to be served, but to die for the world. The gospel of Jesus Christ is simply this. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. And He didn't just do this for the people who liked him. In fact, one of the things that's most shocking about the Christian claim to truth is that all of us, if you understand Scripture, all of us are actually God's enemies. We're alienated, hostile in mind. We're opposed to the work of God in this world. And Jesus came not simply to die for a few good people, but to redeem his enemies. To bring back to God those who were actually opposed to God. So in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, we see this. That while we were still weak, 
at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Not for the godly, not for the people who had their act together, not for the spiritually mature. Who did Jesus die for? The ungodly, the people who weren't concerned with God, who weren't religious. And Paul goes on to say, now, one will scarcely die for a righteous person. You might, perhaps, for a good person, dare even to die. We're seeing that in in Ukraine now, people giving up their lives to defend their nation. People might be doing it for somebody good, but would you give up your life for somebody evil? But that's what Jesus does. In fact, He does it so that God's love can be on display. God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So Jesus, we want to behold Him as God's humble servant. We want to also behold Him, recognizing He wasn't just a servant. He was actually God's just king, a servant king. If you read from Matthew chapter 12, verse 18, this servant that wouldn't cry aloud would be the one who would proclaim justice to the Gentiles. In fact, he would continue his work until he brought justice to victory. So one of the things you need to know about this servant is that he's got a global reigning agenda. He wants to come and enact a kingdom, a kingdom of global Justice. Now, what do we mean by justice? This is important here, okay? When we think of justice, the first thing that comes to most Americans' minds is the idea of punishing people who are evil, right? That's what we mean. We have a justice department, and their job is to punish bad people. Now, while God is holy, and God does, in fact, ensure that He will punish evil, That's not the biblical conception of justice. It's too small. The biblical conception of justice is about the business of restoring all of the broken world back into right relationship with the living God, bringing everything back under His authority. Man rebelled, but God's sense in His work of justice is about bringing all of the world under the authority of the living God. So when Isaiah says in Isaiah 42, this, when he says he will bring forth justice to the nations, he's saying all of the nations will be brought back into right relationship with God. When he says he will faithfully bring forth justice, he's saying that, that he will continue this work until everyone is in that right relationship with God. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in all of the earth. Not just in one or two places, not in a few select nations that that we think are God's favorite little countries, but in all of the earth. In fact, the coastlands, which is a, a term in Hebrew poetry for the ends of the earth, are waiting for God's law, for God to bring all of the brokenness of this earth underneath His authority. Now, one of the things we should grasp right away is that means that this king has a kingdom that's different from all of the kingdoms of the earth. Tyrants and dictators, as we are seeing right now, 
are happy to claim lands through military force to achieve the absolute authority over natural resources and to gain even further wealth and power over other people. But what if there was a king who was not interested in that, but who wanted to bring everybody back into right relationship with him. It would mean that his kingdom would be very different from all the kingdoms of the earth, right? If the king is different, then the kingdom's going to be different. And that is exactly what we see. Jesus lives a perfect life, never sins, heals, loves, forgives, touches the lepers, and hangs out with tax collectors and sinners. And they kill him for it. And when he's being tried, the trial is on whether or not he is the king that he claimed to be. And at his defense, this is what he says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. My kingdom comes from God, and it's not about the world in and of its geographical, geopolitical Uh, realities, this kingdom that I'm establishing is a spiritual kingdom, and it is a kingdom that has great authority over all earthly kingdoms. It is the true and greater reality, and that kingdom is present and growing. How do you know a kingdom is present? Well, because the king has shown up. And when Jesus shows up in human history, he comes to establish a kingdom to inaugurate it. And that kingdom is continuing to grow now. Jesus is asked one time by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, and he answers them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Jesus compares the kingdom of God to a seed planted in the ground that becomes a great and mighty tree. He compares it to leaven that is put inside yeast, that, uh, inside bread, and uh, inside a flour, I should say, and, and it spreads itself throughout and transforms the flour into bread. He compares the kingdom of God to a farmer putting a seed into the ground and not knowing how the seed comes to life in the ground, but then it grows up and multiplies out into a vast field. This kingdom of God is present and growing. So, Jesus, the one we are beholding, has come as our servant and as our king to bring justice. And he's doing this as God's accepted son. He's not somebody who's doing a mission for God. He is God. He is the Son of God. And He's doing it in a way that is fully pleasing to God because He's been chosen by God for this mission. So you see there in Matthew 12, 18, this servant that we are looking at, we are to look at Him, behold Him, Him who God has chosen, who is beloved, and with whom God's soul, His inmost being, is well pleased. You know, in the life of Jesus, you hear this multiple times. 
at his baptism, as Jesus goes under the water and then comes up, the Holy Spirit descends on him and a voice of the fathers cries out, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Up on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus has a moment where all of the falseness of this world, all of the veil of this world is stripped away. And for a brief moment, his disciples see him as he actually is in some measure and they see his glory and they hear the Father say, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And that matters to you and me. Because Jesus lived the life that we could not have lived, but ought to have lived, we can be accepted by God. In fact, that's another prophecy of Isaiah. In fact, exactly that. Out of his anguish, of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Jesus took our sin upon himself and credited us with his perfect life so that we can be reconciled to God. Now, what do you do when you see this kind of a servant, king, and son? What do you do? You worship. It's the only right response. You worship. You exalt Him. Right? It's like looking at a glorious sunset and going, eh, no thanks. It's like walking amongst the redwoods and going, I really want to look at my phone. It doesn't make sense, folks. When you stand on an amazing coastline, like up on the Mendocino coast, and you see the power of the ocean crashing into the earth and the waves shooting up in the air, you're supposed to be awed by it. All of those things are just pointers to what it means to worship. And Jesus will be exalted. The servant of God, in fact, will be highly exalted by God. God will bestow on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord or King. This servant is the King to the glory of God the Father. Now, what if I told you that's not all? But wait, there's more, they say, on the Ginsu commercials, right? Some of you are old enough to remember the Ginsu commercials. What if the servant king son specifically came to be God's empowered healer? What if he came for the people who were broken? When Scripture says that God put His Spirit on this servant king son, you have to know what is the agenda and work of the Spirit. You have to know what that is. And Jesus, when He announced His ministry, He read another prophecy from Isaiah. At the very beginning of His ministry, this is what He read in that little synagogue. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Okay, here's the Spirit. What does that mean? 
Charismatic renewal time, time for us to all raise our hands, get down, party. Nope. (laughs) Wait. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. The Lord has anointed me to do what? Bring good news to the poor. Bind up the brokenhearted. Proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. When God's Spirit comes on a person, these are the things you should be looking for. They're the kind of people who proclaim good news, who announce justice, who comfort the mourning, to bring healing to the brokenhearted. In fact, that's exactly what Jesus did. See, Jesus didn't come for the people who just had their act together, the people who were doing okay, even. He came to bear our griefs and our sorrows. He came to carry your pain. We we looked at him as if God had done something terrible to him. We, God had struck him down and afflicted him. But when he suffered, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And through his wounds, with his wounds, we are what? Healed. Now, believe it or not, Everything I've just told you is just the introduction. Because it is possible to believe everything that I have just said, to see Jesus, and to think that everything I just said is true for somebody else. But not for me. to not experience His grace. And that's why this poetic line matters so much in that prophecy. In the midst of announcing God's servant, this king, this beloved, accepted child, this healer, is a promise. A promise that may at first not seem obvious A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. What does that mean? Reeds are tall grasses. They grow up in marsh areas uh, associated particularly with the Middle East uh, very often. And they would be used, uh, they're like cane, they would be cut down, they could be carved into flutes, they could be made into a variety of tools or instruments. But if a reed got broken or bruised early on in its growth, it was useless. It wasn't worth anything. Because before it could grow and be strong and be strengthened in and of itself, it would just begin to die. This servant king comes to bruise reeds and he doesn't break them, he doesn't toss them away. A flickering wick, we have a little bit more connection with what that is, right? Even if it's just little pretty little candles we light in our house to make things smell good. 
but he won't put out even a smoldering wick of faith. So what do I think Jesus is trying to say to us? I think if we go back through everything that I just talked about and we behold this servant king, we are going to see what Jesus came to do. We're going to see that Jesus came to specifically befriend sinners, people whose faith is weak, who've been beaten up by sin, whose sin habits at times have seemed overwhelming to them. Who was Jesus hanging out with? Not the religious teachers, not the Pharisees, no. Jesus was known as a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He was hanging out with the people on the wrong side of town. The people who didn't know what they ought to be doing or who knew it and couldn't seem to do it. In fact, that's what Jesus came to do was to bring those people and you and me to repentance through His kindness. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. I want to ask you a question. When you sin, what do you think God's attitude towards you is? Now, let me be clear. I want you to understand what God's attitude towards your sin is, and He hates it. There's not a single sin that you have committed that God does not hate. But the question I ask you, what do you think His attitude towards you is? See, God's attitude is one of kindness. His orientation is not condemnation but an invitation to bring us to a place of repentance and restored right relationship with Him. God came to save us from our sin, not to leave us in our sins. That's why Paul could write to Timothy, this is trustworthy, Timothy. You can bet your life on it. It deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Church, if you don't see yourself as a sinner, there is no gospel for you. Jesus didn't come to save people who have their act together. He came for the people who are weak and spiritually broken and needy. He came to save us and deliver us from that sin. And He came to heal the broken. He came to heal the broken. What was it that Jesus was doing whenever he withdrew? And Matthew said, this prophecy was applying to that time. He was off in the wilderness healing people, right? That's what he was doing. If you read a little bit farther, you see one of these many descriptions you see throughout the gospel of what was happening around Jesus. And I think sometimes we're a little bit too scared of this because we can, we've seen people maybe misuse this in, in certain kinds of bad teaching when they make promises about Jesus bringing physical healing that He doesn't guarantee. But when you look at the life of Jesus, you do see this reality. You see the crowd wondering, struck in awe. Why? Because they see the mute people speaking, the crippled made healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. Now that's impressive. Because here's the thing, Jesus didn't come to save you from your sin and pay for your sins and then leave you in your sin. No, He came to save you from your sin, to deliver you from your sin, and to heal all the broken parts of you that lead you into sin. He came to restore you. 
So if that's what he came for, who did he come to save, to connect with? Well, he came for you if you're spiritually poor. Not if you're spiritually rich. Who's blessed according to Jesus? Blessed are the poor in spirit. You may have faith that you feel like this morning is like a flickering wick. You're not even sure that it could ever become a flame again. I have good news for you. Jesus came for you. You're not sure if you believe. You may feel like you've tried, you've prayed, you've sought, you've not seen and your spiritual life is just weak, good news. Jesus came for you if you're spiritually poor, and He promises you the kingdom of heaven. He came for you if you're grieving. Are you grieving a loss in this world? A friend? A child? A spouse? Maybe you're grieving over your sin. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. He promises that to you. This Son of God, King, who has authority over all things, is promising you His comfort. Now, I don't know about you guys, but this last week, I felt like all week long, all week long, I was never getting my to-do list done. I know Theo knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> Pages, amening. All right. I'm not getting it done. Have you ever felt crowded by life? Overwhelmed? You ever feel helpless? Harassed? Feel like everything's just sort of like coming at you 52 different ways? Good news. Jesus came for you. He came for you. He came for, for people that He wanted to pour out His compassion on, people who were overwhelmed by the crowds, and, and He sees them helpless and harassed, and His response is not one of contempt. It's not to flee from you. When you are overwhelmed with anxiety and the burdens of this world and the busyness of life, Jesus is saying to you, come to me. I want you to be with me. I want to bring you into right relationship with me. You say, I'm brokenhearted. You don't know how badly I'm hurting. I'm crushed by the realities of life and all the brokenness of this world. Scripture would tell you that Jesus has this to say. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. He's near you in your brokenness. Not once you get over your brokenness. He's near you in your brokenness. And if you're crushed, He's right there for you. Are you emotionally exhausted? You feel like your sins have overwhelmed you and all you have to stand before God with is your broken spirit? Good news. Jesus is here for you. That's who He came for. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, are all that you can bring God. 
See, I think we get things so backwards. We think God wants us to bring all of our good deeds and all of our best things to Him and go, look, God, aren't you impressed? And He goes, none of that happened without me doing that in and through you. (laughs) But the sacrifices God desires are for us to bring Him our brokenness and to cry out to Him and say, God, I'm a sinner. I'm weak. I'm hurting. And I need you. Here's some promises that I can give you. Jesus will give you peace in the midst of a broken and hurtful world. You know, that can seem so easy to say. One of my prayers for my Ukrainian brothers and sisters in Christ every night for the last few nights is realizing I'm going to bed and I don't have shells going off. I'm not in a subway tunnel huddling down there. I'm not sitting there wondering if when I wake up in the morning, another country has taken over my country. Or if I'll even wake up at all. So I pray that God will give them this kind of peace. The peace that surpasses all understanding that we have been promised. Jesus has this to say to them and to you in all of your brokenness and heartache. He says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, not might. You will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Not I will overcome it, I have. There's not a single situation that Jesus does not have ultimate authority over. Brothers and sisters, Jesus wants to come and heal your emotional, spiritual, and yes, even your physical wounds. He's in the business of healing the brokenhearted and binding up their wounds. You know, by the last couple of years, I've had a privilege of doing some studying with uh, the Allender Center out of the Seattle School of Psychology and Theology and learning about the brokenness that affects all of us. I've been reminded time and again that there is so little that we can do as humans We can love one another, we can forgive one another, we can encourage one another, we can be agents of God's grace and push one another to healing. But in the end, healing is a work of God. It's a work of God. And Jesus will bring healing into your life if you will bring your wounds and your brokenness to Him. And can I just say that so often, I think Christians... We do a really bad job of this. We're constantly trying to heal ourselves and pretend like we don't carry the emotional and psychological scars that afflict us so deeply. We think that Jesus isn't interested in dealing with our wounds. Nothing could be further from the truth. He wants to heal you And bring that good news to your wounds. And Jesus will find us in our brokenness. He will tend to us 
in all our wandering. He will guide us when we are lost, and He will strengthen us when we are weak. This is an amazing promise from the prophet Ezekiel. God says, I myself, not somebody else, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong. I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. Remember, right relationship with the living God, bringing all things under His rule and reign. Right? So, the invitation was to see, to behold Jesus as He actually is, not some distorted picture of Him, some minimizing when Satan says to you that Jesus can't fix you, He can't do anything. You need to see Him as He actually is, as Scripture portrays Him, as the servant King, the Son of God, and the true and faithful Healer. But if you're going to experience that grace, you're going to have to come to Him with all of your brokenness, and you need to do so in hope. When you come to Him and like a little child with something you've broken and you go, Daddy, fix it. You have to believe that that God can and will and delights to do so. This is what Scripture says we're to do with this King. We're to put our hope in Him. In this passage where it says, in His name the Gentiles will hope. Gentiles are anybody outside of the faith community, anybody who's far away from God, anybody who's spiritually broken, anybody who has no right to be there. Put your hope in Him because He's a God who delights in healing the brokenhearted. So let's pray that this week God will help us to see Him and come to Him with all of our broken reality and there find grace to heal and be changed. Father God, awaken us to the truth of what You want us to experience through the grace of Your Son. Forgive us for times we believe the lies of Satan that you don't want to serve us, that you don't want to have anything to do with us instead of believing that you came to be our king, not simply to deny us from things that we might really want, but rather to bring us back into right relationship with you. Thank you for sending your son and for healing all of these people from all of their diseases and brokenness so that we understand there's nothing we can't come to you with and cry out for healing and renewal and change. Father, enable us and empower us to live in the light of the invitation you have given us to come to you with our brokenness and know there we will find grace sufficient to the need. Bring us your healing, empower and embolden our faith and our hope. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Would you